Would you please join me as we pray? God, you say that you reveal yourself to those who are like little children, those that are humble, those that are needy, those that need to hear a word from you. That's all of us, whether we realize it or not. I pray you would help us to see that, that we might hear from you, O Lord. In Christ's name, amen. As Duke said at the beginning of our service, this is really a high point of our year as a network, as three congregations, one church family. And it's a highlight because we come together and we just get a, a bit of a glimpse of the many great things that God is doing in our midst. And we don't do this to congratulate ourselves. We do it to rejoice in God, that he uses broken vessels draw straight lines with crooked sticks. It's a good thing for us to be together. I hope you're filled with anticipation about that. And when we come together, who's ever online to preach usually tries to think about a theme that's relevant across our three congregations. And the theme I want to bring before us is faith. Faith. Now, outside the church, that word might bring a couple things to mind. Uh, one might be just various r religious traditions, like the Hindu faith or the Jewish faith. Or it might mean positivity, like you, you got to have faith, to quote George Michael, for those of you that remember the 80s. <laughs> or you just need to believe. You hear that sort of theme in our culture. In the church, there's also different angles that are emphasized. In, in this little circle, the Reformed Presbyterian world, in case you didn't know, that's the one that we inhabit, Many times faith is talked about in terms of doctrine, the faith that's handed down or justification by faith. In other pockets of the church, sometimes it's referred to, in a sense, as maybe spiritual willpower, the act of faith. What I'd like to focus upon, just for a short time here, is the idea as faith, as active trust in the promises and person of God. Faith active day-to-day -day trust in the promises and person of God. And this has been something that the elders across all three congregations have been thinking and praying a lot about, the place of faith. One of the places that God met us was on our elders' retreat, and Russ and Duke may have mentioned something uh, to the other congregations. Mike and I have talked about it, but I would say it was a unique time for us uh, where we, God just had a moment with us, and it was spurred on by a little uh, biography that Russ led us in on the life of George Mueller. Some of you may have heard of this guy. Uh, he was uh, German-born, but he pastored in England for 66 years, the same church. He, his ministry was longer than that, but 66 years. But he's most famous for starting five large orphanages, 10,000 orphans that he cared for, the fact that he never raised any money, he only prayed for it, and it always came in, didn't uh, ask for a salary, it, he prayed for it, it just came in. And so this guy has done enough uh, where he would be impressive even to Washington, D.C. You know, he would win the nonprofit award for the year, no doubt. But what intrigued me about 
this biography, and as Russ was sharing it with us, was why he did it. The ultimate motive, what drove him. And I want you to hear his words. This is why he starts his nonprofit. That God may be glorified, should he be pleased to furnish me with the means, so it might be shown that it's not a vain thing to trust in him, that the faith of his children may be strengthened, whereby it may be seen that God is faithful still and hears prayer still. That's why he did it. He wanted people to know that God was alive and he was still answering prayers. Now, I think, and by the way, he had over 50,000 recorded answers to prayer during his life, ones that could be corroborated by other people where God had moved in an obvious way. Now, I think there's two things that sort of hinder us from getting on board with that. One, we tend to live in a city in an age of sophistication where we would say, you know, that's well and good for films about God, you know, like, you know, whatever film you would have about God, that, that's good. That's good for the 1800s, but we're in a much more reasonable day. You know, we know better now that, you know, you don't ask God for those things. So I think, one, it's just the age of sophistication we're in. But the second thing is our own problem-solving reflex. We would rather fix the problem and solve the problem rather than wait on God to intervene. It's just the nature, I think, of a lot of people in this city. Not everybody, but a lot of folk. And as we do that, I think there's three things that happen. One, we miss out on the supernatural action of God from day to day in our midst. And he is doing stuff. So that's one thing. Number two, you will tend to pray small prayers because you pray according to your nature and ability and not God's nature and ability. But lastly, what it really does, it compromises and corrupts your view of God, who he is. And so, in this passage, we have a non-Jewish Roman soldier that Jesus lifts up as an example of faith and trust in God. In fact, nowhere else do we find this. Jesus is amazed by this guy's faith, amazing faith. He marvels at this man's faith. And I want us to get in on why he does. What, what caused that sort of faith and trust in God? So let me mention two things. One, I think it's a grasp of the authority of God's word. That's the first thing, the authority of God's word. Now, Capernaum was a trade city, and it had a tax station in it, which made it you know, all the more reason to have a garrison of troops there. And this centurion was over this garrison of troops. His job was to, you know, exercise oversight with discipline, execute uh, orders. Now, centurions were well paid, uh, but they weren't allowed to marry until after their 20-year service. So there was no wife and children. Some of them took concubines. And they also weren't allowed to have friendships with those uh, ranked beneath them. And in modern military, you, you know, understand the same thing. But the bottom line is that this guy was probably pretty lonely. It was a lonely call to be a centurion, so it would make sense why he might be extra tight with his servant. In fact, Matthew uses a word that said this centurion had affection for this servant like a father would a child. Just like maybe, you know, a, a lady maid would get really close to their lady. I think if that makes sense. Maybe lady something, you know, not just their lady, but lady something. They always had a name, 
Lady Mary, right? Okay, there you go. Now you understand what I'm trying to say. But the point is, he has affection for this servant. But he doesn't ask Jesus directly. It's interesting. He just reports the situation, probably by way of messenger. And Jesus responds by saying, I will come and heal him. Or, another translation, shall I come and heal him? Which would have been more of a rhetorical question. But either way, he's determined to go and heal this guy. But that isn't the reason why Jesus, you know, is, is so impressed. It's the response of the centurion to Jesus saying that. This is what he says. Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Few things you see there. One is the centurion had learned about God through his job, through his vocation. So, you know, he, he had actually, uh, that whole analogy he uses about Jesus' authority and his authority, it's because he had been paying attention about God working in the everywhere of life. And that helped build up his faith. So if you and I basically just think about God on Sunday or think about God when we pray a few minutes and we don't understand him working in our vocation, working in our city, working in the systems of the city, will tend to have smaller faith. So his faith gets off the ground. He'd obviously been meditating on this sort of thing. That's the first thing. The second thing we see is he understands the authority of a word. Now, uh, two weekends ago, we had some family in town, so we took them to the Marine barracks to watch the parade, and the Marines do their you know, drill, their silent drills. Has anybody ever gone and done that thing? Okay, a few of you have gone and done it. You know, tickets are free, just go online, do it. But one thing, as you're there, you can't get away from, one thing that you can't get away from is the authority of a word. Because everything that is done there is based on a command and a word. You know, no, you, you didn't find many soldiers going up, listen, would you just twirl the gun for me? You know, would you please just step in line a little bit? They say a word and it's done. Well, the centurion understands that too. He's a military guy. He says to Jesus, just say the word. Now, if you look at Jesus' ministry, you will find that there were some people that believed that the power of Jesus' healing, you know, his healing touch, resided in you touching him or him touching you. Just like some people would hope to touch the Pope or the Dalai Lama or maybe Duke. You know, whoever it would be. <laughs> but they could hope that something would happen by a touch. But what you see here is this. The centurion understands where the power resides. It resides in the word. That's what he sees here. The power resides in the word of Jesus. And so even though this is a guy that probably just heard a little bit of the Hebrew scriptures, he got that the whole thing started, Genesis 1, by God kicking it off with a word. Maybe he heard that Jesus calmed seas with a word. But as you read the Gospels, you will find that when Jesus did great miraculous things, it wasn't primarily about the great miraculous thing he did. It was primarily about the Word. The miracle was done to validate the Word. And that's the same thing you find here. And the centurion's able to get in and understand that. Jesus delivered people with his Word. He discipled people with his Word. But it was always his Word that was at work. That's where the power resided. 
And I think it has something about the way our faith grows. Because many times um, we might think if, if Jesus would show up, if I got to be back then like they were, or if God would show up to me, if he would touch me, if he would come in person, and then I would have strong faith. But what you have to realize is there were people that got healed that didn't believe his words. They got better, so to speak. They got what they wanted, but they didn't get what they needed. They came away without his word. And the New Testament tells us how your faith grows. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ, the word of God. So we understand that the way faith grows is actually the same way this centurion understood it. It's no coincidence that the same guy, Mueller, that had 50,000 answers to prayer read through his Bible 200 times and 100 times on his knees. That's not a coincidence. If we want to ask, how did that guy have such great faith? It's because the, the living word of God was in him and residing in him. And so that means it's accessible for every one of us here. Now, I know it's hard to read through the Bible. Uh, you know, when, you, when I read through the Bible, I, I used this plan literally. This was the title of the plan, the slacker's plan. It had no, it had no dates at all. You know, because the dates just make you feel guilty. No dates at all. So, you know, I could like stall out in the middle of February in the book of Leviticus and come back in and still feel good about myself. You know, so if you have, but the point is all of us can get in on this word thing. You can listen to it. You can read it, whatever it is. And so it's this faith, this understanding of the word. So you might be here tonight with little faith, shaky faith. You might be here with no faith, but the prescription is the same. Uh, my own journey from unbelief to belief basically happened because someone said, do you want to read through the Gospel of John? And I just started reading through it. It's the same prescription for any of us. You're not going to know God unless he tells you about himself. That only makes sense, right? You need a person to tell you about themselves if you're going to get to know him. How much more so with God? He's got to talk to you, and that's why he's had a word. But it's not just understanding the authority of the word, and this is where I'm getting at. You have to experience it. So it's you and I getting in on a little bit of what the psalmist would say. This word to me is like food. This word is like light to me. This word is better than my meds that I need. This word is like a sword. Sometimes it pierces me. This Lord is word is like life-giving breath to me. We have to begin to experience it because there's a whole level of trusting God that just comes from that. But with all that, I don't think that was ultimately why Jesus was impressed with this centurion. He got the authority of the word, and that, wow, Jesus, I think it was something even more, that the centurion grasped from whom the word came. He penetrated into Jesus' identity, dimly, shadowy, but he was able to penetrate in the identity to who, of who Jesus was. You hear it in his logic. He goes, listen, I say go and do, and they go and do because of who I am in part, but because of who I'm under, Caesar. They don't deny my word because of Caesar's word, Caesar's word. And he understood, they're gonna, Jesus, whatever you say is going to be done because of your connection with God, the son of the emperor, the son of the great king. Now, maybe he came to understand later, and I believe we have reason to believe this, the son of God himself. So although it was a dim, he understood something about the identity of this Jesus. Here's my point. 
Your faith grows in God. Your faith grows in God as your faith knows God. And this is where today, um, you know, much of what we're told about religion, religion, religious pluralism, and I think there are positives about religious pluralism. Don't have time to talk about that now. But here's one of the deficits. We get a generic view of God. And that doesn't trigger any sort of faith. Your trust in someone isn't trust in a generic human being. You know, that isn't what motivates you to trust them. It's something about that person. It's the same with God. There's a local pastor here, Stuart McAlpine, who pastors Christ Our Shepherd. And Stuart is such a wonderful guy. And he's having me read uh, his book before it's going to get published. And it's, called, it's a theology of asking, asking God. It's just wonderful. It's all about the fact that we ask and God hears. But he just makes this point, obvious point. If you don't know him as Savior, you're not going to ask him for forgiveness. If you don't know that he's a deliverer, you won't ask him to free you from your bondage. If you don't know that he's a comforter, you won't expect him to comfort your grieving heart. Right? If you don't know these things about God, it won't produce faith and trust in you. Amazing faith is tied to this word, but it's not just that, it's getting through the word and seeing Christ, seeing the Son of God. So that's point one. I'm almost out of time, so point two is going to be, be a little bit faster. And that is the capacity, not just the authority of God's word creates amazing faith, but the capacity of God's grace. Now, how the centurion approaches Jesus, or rather how he doesn't approach Jesus, is significant. One, he doesn't approach him by virtue of his position in status and standing. Centurions were the most gifted. That's how they got the gig. They were talented, right? That's how they get into the place. But he doesn't come based on that. He's not like the general from Syria in, in uh, Second Kings who needs healing as well. He needs healing, and he comes to the prophet, Elisha, and he says, basically in a demanding way, you need to heal me based on who I am, my status. And Elisha has to humble him before he gets healed. The centurion doesn't come that way. Sometimes people will pose the question, why did a lot of poor people find faith in Jesus? And modern people will tend to say, well, it's because they didn't know any better and they were desperate. Actually not. They came to, they came to understand something early on that many people don't realize until their deathbed. That there is no hope in title and status and position. It means nothing at the end. The poor and oppressed are reminded of that every day. So they get there earlier than a lot of people get there. And this is why they were open to Jesus coming forth. But you and I have to begin, if we're going to be having this sort of amazing faith, pushing that down more and more. It's tough to do, I know. Every day we struggle with it. But he, he not only didn't rest on his faith position, he didn't rest on his morals. You know, you say, don't rest on your laurels. Don't rest on your morals. This guy didn't rest on his morals. If we look at the parallel account of this in the Gospel of Luke, we learn a few things. That Jesus had made his home base, Capernaum. So the centurion was hearing stories about healing. This thing happens to his servant, and so he, he approaches the Jewish elders in the town, and he says, will you approach Jesus? The reason he did that is because he was a friend of the Jewish community. He had actually built their synagogue, and you can see ruins of that synagogue even today. And so the Jewish elders approach Jesus, and listen to what they say. They say, this centurion is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is one who built us our synagogue. Now, that approach makes a lot of sense to us. 
It fits actually with the spirit of the age today. That the person that's respectful of other faiths, the person that does good, you know, in a, in a way where they're being kind to their neighbor, the person that's sincere and kind, that person deserves, has a right to get something from God. That's the spirit of the age. But what I want you to notice, that is not how the centurion comes. He comes the total opposite way. He comes by saying, Lord, I am unworthy. <laughs> I am unworthy. I'm not deserving to have a blessing of the people of God, but I'm asking you for one. I'm not deserving to have you come over under my roof. He's sensitive to the fact that Jesus would violate Jewish customs. Jesus didn't care about that, but he's sensitive about it. His posture as he comes to Jesus is humble. He doesn't come as the great patron of Israel. He doesn't come as the great philanthropist. He doesn't come in his majority culture status, which would, would have been his Roman status. He comes as a soldier who needs grace. That's how he comes. He comes as a person who needs grace. I'll tell you, I, I, I've struggled with this. Uh, I'll mention one area, parenting. Those of you that have parented, are parenting, or you know, really invested in a kid, maybe you can relate with this. In the moments in my little parenting world when my kids are struggling, but more so I'm struggling, and it feels like I'm, I'm doing nothing well, and nothing's working out like I hoped, and it's just really, I mean, the lowest I am. It feels like there is no fruit. As much as I would want to cry out to God's grace, my, my instinct is to go, come on, God. I mean, I mean, what do I got to do? I mean, I have poured, you know, 17 years into this. I mean, we've loved these guys. You know, I, I, we've tried, we raised them, and we're praying for them. I mean, what do I got to do here? Right? I mean, I don't know. Everything, maybe, maybe for you it's your career, maybe it's relationship status, maybe it's you're trying to get ahead in life, but you feel that same part of your prayer that goes, what do I got to do? But instead, we could come in a different way. We could come not in our own name, but his name. We, would, we, we could pray like the great prayers of the Bible and say, because of you, because of your grace, because of your, your tendency to be, you know, kind and forgiving, because of these things, God, I come to you. And so the centurion is really a token, not, of, not only of God reaching all the nations, of his pan-ethnic bride, of his, you know, cross-cultural church, the global church, but he is actually a token of those that only get into the kingdom of God, and that is by the grace of God. Jesus will have to warn the Israelites, and he does even here. He says a word of judgment that those that would come trusting in their moral works or their racial superiority. Jesus has to say to them, you're not true children of Abraham because Abraham got in because he believed and he was credited as righteousness. So, to wrap this up, the people of God, if we are going to be a network that grows in grace, and we need to be, we will then be a network that grows in faith, and then we will be a network that prays big and risky prayers and lives by faith. The more we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound, the more we'll sing amazing faith, how sweet the sight. Those things will go together. Now, I know that could be the ending of a sermon right there because that was a nice way to end it, right? But I gotta say one more thing. I gotta say one more thing. And that is the requirement of grace. The requirement of grace. Now, I've been thinking about this a lot, and I've been reading through the Gospels, and a story just hit me. It's the story of the Apostle Peter. 
Some of you may know this, when he walks on water to Jesus. There's a storm. Jesus walks out on the water. I mean, gee, that's where this, the phrase comes from, walking on water. He's walking on the water, and they're in this boat that's tossing and turning. And Peter says, I mean, imagine the audacity of this, the faith. He goes, Lord, you know, call me and I'll walk to you. I mean, imagine being on that boat. This is real life. And you're looking at Peter, you're like, what? But here's the thing about it. Jesus does it, and Peter, you know, he gets on the edge. He's on there at the edge. He's going over the side. There's one leg. You know, and they're probably like, Peter, what are you doing? The other leg, he gets on out. He steps in the way. He doesn't sink. He doesn't sink. He starts to walk. He's walking toward Jesus. He's walking toward Jesus. The storm begins to swell. But then Jesus, Peter just for a moment loses focus, loses faith. Peter does, and he begins to sink, and he yells, save me. And Jesus grabs him, and he looks at him, and he says, good job. Doesn't say good job, does he? He says, you of little faith. What? You of little faith? I mean, he got out of the boat. He made it, he made it to the 10-yard line. I mean, you of little faith. And it struck me, Jesus' vision for the capacity of our faith blows our minds. He believes that you and I can trust so much more than we believe we can trust. That's why he said that. He believes his grace can produce a faith that can reach for things and make it all the way to him. And that's why he said to Peter, you have little faith. Even more I can do in you. Can we be a network that lives that way? We pray those things. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the way that you just keep walking with us and you don't give up on us, Jesus. Thank you for this blessed family of three congregations. Thank you for every act of faith. Thank you for every work of faith. Oh, Lord, we pray that we would do more to please you. In Christ's name, amen. 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 Thank you, brother, for that good word. Good word. For the faith of the centurion. And I was struck as I listened to Glenn as he's helping us to understand the nature of faith, trusting in the word of God seeing the capacity of God's grace, I was struck by the way in which the centurion 